Okay, I'm going to get started. I'm assuming maybe a few more people will trickle in here. But got quite a bit of material to go over, <clears throat> and I try to give you some time at the end for questions if you have any. So, huh? They're back there. Yeah, just kind of a, a note-taking guideline. So. Anyway, let's pray. Father, just thank you for <clears throat> another day, opportunity to come together and worship you, learn from your word, and just pray as we look into the person and work of Jesus Christ, your Son, God the Son, the Word made flesh, that it would grow our understanding uh, of who he is, what he has accomplished, what you've accomplished on our behalf, and pray that it would serve to grow our love for Christ and our desire to live our lives for him. And pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> to be a Christian is to know Jesus Christ. And we know Christ by what is revealed in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels. So if you want to know Jesus more thoroughly, you want to know Jesus more intimately, uh, you should be spending time in the Gospels. That's where we should spend a great deal of our study of the Word. Now, all doctrine is important. <clears throat> all Scripture is given to us and is profitable for study. Uh, but the greatest insight, the most concentrated um, revelation of Jesus is, is in the Gospels. So we should be spending a lot of time there, always. And for the next nine weeks, we're going to be looking at nine major events or moments in uh, the life and ministry of Jesus. First of all, we're going to look at the manger, which is his incarnation. Uh, we're going to look at the river, his baptism, the wilderness, his temptation, the mountain, his transfiguration, the garden, his decision, <clears throat> the cross, his passion, the tomb, his resurrection, and the throne, his ascension, and the return, his coming again, which you heard a lot about last week in the sermon. Um, this should help us to better understand who Christ is, who he is, and what he's done and again, as I said before, it should help us to grow in our love for him, our trust in him, and our desire to live for him. Now, uh, most of the material that we're going to be uh, drawing from uh, in this study for the next nine weeks is from a book called Ichthus by Sinclair Ferguson and uh, Derek Thomas. And Ichthus is <clears throat> the Greek word for fish. And... Uh, the reason that word is significant is because the letters, the Greek letters in the word ichthus form an acrostic for the words Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And another interesting thing about that word ichthus and about the symbol of the fish, which you've probably seen on people's bumpers, you know, bumper stickers with the fish or that little thing with the fish that's like eating Darwin. Have you seen that? Yeah. Uh, well, the significance of the fish was <clears throat> it was a symbol that was used by early Christians, particularly during times of persecution, and it was a way that they could identify another believer 
without actually, you know, asking the question verbally and potentially, you know, coming under persecution or being turned in as uh, a Christian. And <clears throat> what they would do is two people would be talking and, you know, in the course of the conversation, of course, everything's dirt back in those days. There was not much paved, um, not many paved roads, at least not in Palestine. And uh, so they'd be talking and one person would, uh, with a stick or with his foot, would make a line, kind of a half moon symbol like this in the dirt, right? Can you see that? Sort of. And then if the other person was a believer, again in the course of their conversation, they would complete the symbol by either drawing the top portion or the bottom portion, and that way they were able to identify you know, the other person as a believer secretly. So that's kind of a cool thing. <clears throat> that was a very big thing during the Jesus movement of the 70s, and uh, that's when that whole fish thing got started, I think. Uh, at least got started 2,000 years later again. Anyway, Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. <clears throat> He's the Son of God, and he is the Savior of everyone who believes in him. We know that, uh, and we're speaking uh, specifically of those who believe in all that he is and all that he has done. He's the Savior of everyone who trusts in his atoning work on the cross. Now, all the gospel writers give us a picture of Jesus and each one is slightly different um, because each author is slightly different, and they are also writing to different audiences. Now, all the Gospels harmonize to give a full picture of who Jesus was and is and what he accomplished. But John's Gospel is by far the Gospel that gives us the deepest theological insight <clears throat> into the person and work of Christ and it gives us the deepest insight into the heart and mind of Christ. John Calvin said, Since all the gospel writers had the same object to show Christ, the first three exhibit his body, if I may be permitted to put it like that, but John shows his soul. That's what Calvin says. So we see Jesus for who he is, not just on the surface, but who he is at his core. And this is revealed in the opening of John's gospel, um, what we know as the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where J uh, John identifies Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. So why would John describe Jesus as the Word? Well, in the ancient Greek culture, the word logos, translated as word, uh, could mean speech, but it also could refer to reason as the unifying element of the universe. But that's not what John was drawing on in his description of Jesus, his description of the Word, at least not primarily, may have influenced his description to some degree. But he gets his understanding of the Word from Scripture and, of course, from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First thing that John does in the gospel is he identifies the word as being a person of divine nature. The word was God. He also has a different starting place than the other gospel writers. Matthew begins with Abraham, Mark begins with Isaiah and John the Baptist, 
Luke begins with the parents of John the Baptist, and John begins in eternity past. His gospel isn't in disagreement with the other gospels. Like I said before, uh, the gospels harmonize to give a fuller picture of Christ. And what John does is he uses the language of Genesis to give a greater understanding of who, who Jesus actually is. And saying that Jesus is the Word is saying that Jesus was involved in creation. God spoke His Word, and everything in creation came into being. Everything He spoke created what was good, and everything He created by His Word was good. Jesus is that Word of God. By Him, by Jesus, all things were created. And his claim that, um, that Jesus was the Word of God in the flesh, incarnate, is made by the man, or certainly the apostle, uh, that knew Jesus best and most intimately. He had the, uh, the closest relationship with Jesus. Uh, he'd spent years with Jesus. He had seen him in his weakness, in the limitation of his uh, humanity, his human form or flesh. And yet, in spite of having seen him in that weakness, he was able to confidently assert that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. And John is helping us to understand, by going back to Genesis, that the creative word of God was not a sound. It wasn't audible speech, but rather it was a person. It was the pre-incarnate Jesus and that also gives us um, further understanding that creation is not the result of impersonal forces, but rather it has a personal foundation because all of creation was brought into existence by a person, God the Son, Jesus. And that's extremely important because understanding that the Word was God impacts how we think about everything. The world and everything in it, all of creation, is not some cosmic accident or the result of evolutionary mechanisms. It makes it clear how something could come from nothing and that it's personal. Our existence didn't emerge from some impersonal primordial soup. Behind it all is a person. God the Son. So because of that, we are not alone in the universe. John doesn't only say that the Word was God, but that he was in the beginning with God. He was God with God. And this helps to explain some of what would otherwise be mysterious or confusing statements, um, particularly in Genesis, where it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 1.26, and this is reflected in the statement, the Word was with God. It's an interesting bit of language information here. The Greek word pros, which is translated as with, actually means towards. The Word was not just with God, but He was towards God. We might understand it as He was face-to-face -face with God. Anyway, whatever the full implication of that is, it certainly would suggest great intimacy 
between God the Father and God the Son. They're face to face with each other. They are gazing upon each other. Then John, after he gives us this insight into the intimacy between the Father and the Son, he explains something that is equally profound. He says that the Word, who is face to face with the Father, has now come face to face with us. The Word, God the Son, has come into our world. He has entered into the reality of human existence and the human condition. And that's incredible. So John made a number of important assertions about Jesus. He says he's fully, a fully divine person. Uh, he says he was in the beginning, or we might understand that as prior to creation, always existing, and he was face-to-face with God. But then in his final statement, he sums this all up by simply saying the word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God. That is indisputable. But people still dispute it, particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you've ever encountered a Jehovah Witness or Jehovah's Witness, uh, they will insist that the translation of John uh, chapter 1 in our Bibles is in error. They will say that John 1.1 doesn't say Jesus is God, but only that he is a God. And the reason they give for that is that the Greek, in the Greek, there is no definite article. There is no the before the word theos or God. So because of the missing article, it means a God, not the God. Okay? So that, that's what they will say. Now, a couple things <clears throat> that would disprove that assertion and their reasoning. It is true that the article, the, is not in the Greek text, okay? But the definite article, the, is also missing in a number of other verses that follow, which clearly refer to the God, the one true God. Verse 6 There was a man sent from God, and then in verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. That's pretty obvious that those refer to the one true God, even without the definite article, because it's not there, okay? And and they would agree with that. Now, another point is that many languages, including Greek, um, a noun that speaks of a title can be used without a definite article, okay? We can say that Charles is king of England without using the article the, and there would be no, um, no confusion that we are saying that he is the sole and only king, not just one king among many. <clears throat> He's the only king of England. And also the significance or meaning of a word is always determined by the context, not just the grammar. So in the context of John, it can only mean that the Word was and is God because he makes assertions about the Word that are only true of God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. The world was made through him. He gave the right to become children of God. 
So the word simply doesn't belong to the created order. He is uncreated, and he is the creator. And he has the authority to bring people into God's family. There's a couple more points that argue against the Jehovah's Witness claims. Jesus claims absolute unity with God the Father. I and the Father are one in John 14, 9, which is, would be total blasphemy if it wasn't true, but we know that it is true. And then at the end of the gospel, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and that's God with a capital G. And even in the Jehovah's Witness translation, uh, there's agreement with that. Uh, also, Jesus accepts Thomas's statement he doesn't rebuke him for blasphemy, which it would have been if it, was, if it wasn't true. <clears throat> okay, and then one final point, by not using the definite article, and I thought this was interesting, by not using the definite article, John is making a distinction between the word God the Son and God the Father, rather than implying that the word is all that there is of God, which would, you know, deny the Trinity. Okay? Now, get all that? Okay. Let's move on. What John is accomplishing in all of this is to uh, help us understand and appreciate that Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And if we know Jesus, the Word, then we know the one who has always been and always will be. We know God. Now, as believers, we know the one who brought everything into existence, including us. And, and his incarnation doesn't change his identity, not in the least bit. He's the creator and he's the giver of life, the source of eternal life. Jesus even prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing to be a believer to be a Christian, because the Word who is in the beginning, face to face with God the Father, has come to earth incarnate to be face to face with us, so that we can be face to face with Him, so that we can be face to face with God in intimate relationship with God, knowing God. That's, that's incredible. Then um, John focuses on the incarnation of the Word in 1.14. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word who is God, who created the world, entered and became part of what he had created. And I want you to think about how incredibly profound that reality is, how incredible the incarnation of the Word was. Now, I want to quote word for word again what Sinclair Ferguson said about this. He says, the eternal word of God in the presence of his heavenly father, surrounded by angels, archangels, cherubim, and seraphim, he lived in an atmosphere of intense purity in personal communion with his father and with the Holy Spirit. In this heavenly world, Angelic creatures praise him, but they feel so the intensity of the purity of God that they veil their faces in awe. 
And although themselves perfectly holy and without sin, they clearly sense their creatureliness. It is as though their own created holiness is not able fully to bear the infinite intensity of the uncreated holiness of the mutual devotion they sense is expressed among the three persons of the Trinity. That's why the incarnation is so incredible. Jesus, who lived face-to-face with God in absolute, perfect purity and holiness, has taken on flesh, has become human, has come into our fallen, corrupt, and sin-cursed world. We can never fully comprehend that. The next point on your notes is from purity to pollution. Not possible for us to ever fully understand or even to scratch the surface of what it meant for the holy, pure, sinless Son of God to come into this world. Now, here's an analogy that will maybe help you appreciate it to at least to a very small degree. But just imagine yourself as a non-smoker. Actually, hopefully, you don't have to just imagine that. But there you are, uh, a non-smoker, and you've been out for a walk on the beach where the air is clean and fresh, no pollution, just the fresh smell of the ocean breeze blowing across the waves. And then, at the end of the day, you walk into a pub full of smokers. So I guess you'd have to be in the UK or Europe somewhere because you can't smoke in buildings in California. So anyway, you walk in, and you're overwhelmed by the noxious odor of cigarette smoke. You can't avoid it. Every breath you take, you're sucking in the foul reek of cancer-causing secondhand smoke. And the people in the pub are blowing smoke all over you. And when they talk to you, their breath reeks of smoke. Not only that, but they see that you're not smoking, so they offer you a cigarette. They insist that you join them. And they become angry and indignant if you don't. They hate you for not lighting up with them. And they continue to blow smoke on you. They push their faces closer to yours. They mock you and call you names for not joining them in making smoke. And you're becoming physically sick from the inhaled smoke that you can't avoid. Now, (laughs) that's obviously a pale comparison to what Jesus must have experienced. When the pure, not just sinless, but holy word took on Sinful flesh, it must have been horrible for him, almost unbearable in ways and to a degree that we cannot imagine. The eternal Holy One living in a corrupt, depraved world, breathing in the sinful atmosphere that had been polluted by sinful, wicked men and women, the Word became flesh again. Incredible. Now, when John says that the Word became flesh, he's not saying that um, 
his deity was diminished in any way or to any degree. He did not become less God. No, he was still the eternal word. He was still God the Son. He was the word. He was God. And while still God, he became one of us in every way, flesh and bone. He was still eternally one divine person with a divine nature and at the same time conceived in Mary and born with a human nature. He was one person with two natures. And that's extremely uh, important because only God could do what was necessary to save us. We certainly couldn't save ourselves. And at the same time, only a human being with a human nature could serve as a substitute and sacrifice for sinners. Man sinned, so man had to suffer the punishment for that sin, which is an eternity in hell. And only an infinite God could absorb that full wrath of God against sin and make full and final satisfaction for sin. Only a person who is both God and man could do that, and that was the incarnate word, Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He wasn't a man who got an injection of divinity. He wasn't God only appearing to be a man, but not really, which is what some of the early uh, heresies taught. He was one person with two natures, and uh, those natures operated accordingly. In his divine nature, he continued to be the creating and sustaining word of God. So baby Jesus, which I referenced repeatedly last week, baby Jesus in the manger was still upholding and sustaining all of his creation, even while he was a baby. In his humanity, in his human nature, he was tired and thirsty. He was sad and hungry. He was joyful, sorrowful. He experienced pain, and finally, he was murdered. The reality and uh, the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus as fully God and fully man, is one of those truths, like the Trinity, that we will never fully comprehend. That's impossible. We can't wrap our brains around the incarnation. There's nothing else in the universe that compares to it. And all analogies fall short. It's what it is. Okay? It is what it is. And we can't reduce the truth to something that we can grasp or wrap our brains around. None of the authors of Scripture attempt to explain it or make sense of the incarnation because they can't. We can and must believe it, though, but we can't grasp it, and neither could John or Paul or anyone else. Paul calls it the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. That's 1 Timothy 3.16. As I mentioned a number of times already, there's no disagreement between the gospel writers. They simply relate the story of Christ's coming from different perspectives. John mentions nothing of Joseph or Mary, in the coming of Christ. But even in Matthew and Luke, Joseph is 
set aside. He has no active part in the coming of the word. And even though Mary does yield to the word and the will of God, she doesn't consciously participate in the conception of Jesus. Everything that happened, she experienced mysteriously and passively. The incarnation was totally a work of God, but through human means. Now, quote Ferguson again, he says, Jesus' conception was supernatural, but his birth was normal. Mary was altogether passive in the conception, and yet at the same time she was active in her submission to the will of the Lord and clearly in the process of his birth. The whole nine-month-long event was thus a further illustration of a biblical pattern in which God accomplishes his most powerful works in darkness. At first creation, at the cross of Calvary, in the garden tomb, in the resurrection, and here in the coming of his son, in the darkness of the womb of the virgin, thus silently, privately, humbly, hidden from proud or prying human eyes, the Son of God came in our flesh. A profound mystery. Now, another point about the, um, the incarnation, <clears throat> uh, Jesus being both fully God and man, um, we want to be careful that we don't uh, fall into the erroneous thinking that some people do fall into, that somehow, uh, because Jesus had a divine nature, uh, being God, you know, made life during the incarnation easier for Jesus, made it easier for him to resist temptation. Because remember, uh, the angel Gabriel told Mary that the child that would be born would be called holy. In other words, he was holy. He was God, so he was holy, pure, and sinless, and kind of already referenced that in the smoking analogy. Rather than make life easier, it would make life more difficult. <clears throat> Someone who is spiritually sensitive, as Jesus was, even believers who are further along in their sanctification, are repulsed and grieved by sin, um, much more so than those who are less mature and certainly more so than unbelievers. The spiritually sensitive find this sinful world a much more painful place to live in. A mature believer who loves, worships, and seeks to honor God is much more grieved or offended by the casual and blasphemous use of the name of God, Jesus Christ, as a curse word, particularly when it's joined with other foul and inappropriate expletives. We've never understood or felt the sinfulness of sin the way Jesus did because we're used to sin. We become numb to it, but Jesus never did. He was always acutely and perfectly aware of just how wicked, just how twisted, corrupt, rebellious, and evil sin actually was and is. And we've never experienced weakness and need the way Jesus did. We've always been weak and needy. That's just who we are as humans. That's the human condition. But Jesus, 
Jesus was the all-powerful God of the universe. He never needed anything. Then to take on weak and needy human flesh must have been crushing for him. We've never experienced anything like that. And we've never experienced sorrow the way Jesus experienced sorrow. We've never experienced anything as deeply or as intensely as Jesus did, and we never will. We, we've become insensitive, and we've become used to the effects of sin in this world, but he was always perfectly and intensely sensitive. He was fully and acutely sensitized to the effects of sin in the world, fully and acutely sensitive to human grief, human suffering, and fully and acutely sensitive to human sin and its effects. That's the significance of the word, God the Son becoming flesh. Okay, so, so far we've seen how John has emphasized uh, the divinity of the word. The word was in the beginning, and the word was and is God. He was also stressing the self-humbling of the word in becoming flesh, taking on human form and human nature. And then there is one more important, if not the point of ultimate importance in the incarnation. It's the purpose of the incarnation. Um, The word became flesh so that he could suffer the punishment for our sin and grant us salvation reconciliation with God, eternal life, adoption into the family of God, hope in a future in the presence of God for all eternity. And John develops this point by saying the word came to bring light into darkness, to enlighten sin-darkened minds and hearts. Later in, in chapter 319, John says that by nature, We love the darkness more than the light. We prefer sin over righteousness. We prefer lies over truth. We love darkness because we think we can hide from God and keep our sin secret. We become accustomed to darkness. We prefer it. We think the darkness is normal. We think darkness is the way it's always been or the way it should be. Apart from Christ, we think darkness is light, evil is good, and good is evil. We are definitely living and loving darkness before Christ comes. And if we were actually enlightened, living in the light rather than darkness, we would love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. But by nature, and apart from Christ, first enlightening us, We don't love God at all. And when people say, you hear unbelievers saying this, when when they say God is love, what they really mean is God is tolerant of their sin and tolerant of the fact that they don't love him. How darkened are our minds apart from Christ. So dark that we don't think that the God of creation, the God of the universe, the giver and source of life, the source of all that is good, all that is pure joy, we don't think he's worthy of worship or living our lives for him. And again, 
That's apart from Christ. But Jesus brought light into the darkness. He enlightened the mind of Nicodemus. He shone light on the moral darkness and sin of the woman at the well. He brought light into the darkness of Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus. Jesus brought light into the darkened hearts of all those that would believe in him, transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. And that's what every man, woman, and child needs, the light that Jesus brings into our darkness. And then in verse 16, John says that the word, from the word, we've all received grace upon grace, and we do need grace. We need God to give us what we can't earn for ourselves. We need God's grace to be forgiven. We need grace for justification. We need grace to be restored to right relationship with God. We need grace in order to be saved. We need grace to be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. We need grace to be adopted into the family of God. Restored. We were created in the image of God. And we need grace to be restored to that unmarred glory because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the Word made flesh, God the Son incarnate, Jesus is the only one who can give us that grace, save us, to restore us. And that was all accomplished with and in his incarnation. Now, near the end of John's gospel, he records uh, Jesus' prayer in chapter 17, verse 22. It says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, Father. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. When we're restored to glory, we will see him in his glory. We will know Christ as he is. We will know God face to face. Now, the only right response to the reality of the incarnation of Christ and all that he accomplished in that incarnation you know as believers, is faith in Christ and trust in his work on the cross, paying for our sins, and then submission to him, following him, obeying him, loving him as Lord and Savior, knowing him. Okay? Any questions? (laughs) No questions? Matt. Will you say truly God and truly man as well as fully God and fully man? So, so they're really interchangeable. They're basically saying the same thing. Someone who's fully God is truly God. So, but yeah, I've seen both. Yes, sir.
I don't want to get married. So I will give you an answer because I don't want to make a mistake in my in my explanation, which would be very easy. Okay, so let me get back to you on that, and I can address it next week. Okay, how is that the doctrine of original sin not passed on to Adam? There's a couple of different explanations for that. Okay. All right. Yes, ma'am. So making a distinction between God the Son and God the Father as opposed to if he used the definite article, the, referring to the word, <clears throat> it would seem to imply that the word is all that there is of God. And that would be a denial of the Trinity. So, so by saying, by not using the definite article, it leaves that open to, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. You're dismissed. Next week will be um, the river, baptism, the baptism of Jesus. You're dismissed. You can sit here if you want to, but not right now. So I'm going to write that down so I can uh, be sure to address it next week. Huh? Yeah, they say... Yeah, in the New World Translation, it says a God, but that's not in the Greek either. Yeah. And well, oh, interesting thing, too, is they used the King James Version up until, I think it was like somewhere in the mid-50s, and they got tired of dealing with John chapter 1, so they came up with a New World Translation. But, but they're not consistent, because several places where, you know, the article is not there, they... They translate it the way we do.